Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I am co-host of the channel with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we talk with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Michael Lynch about his new book, In Praise of Reason, which has just been published with the MIT Press. Michael is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. There is a set of intellectual practices associated with the natural sciences that's devoted to the idea that our cognitive lives are properly managed when we base our beliefs upon evidence and sound reasoning. For simplicity's sake, we can call this set of practices the method of reason. The method of reason governs many of our everyday affairs. For example, when the car doesn't start, we look in the gas tank, or we check the engine, rather than offer a sacrifice to the gods of transportation. But one may ask whether the method of reason is appropriate as a basic cognitive policy for all areas of belief. Perhaps there are some matters where reasons and evidence simply don't matter. Perhaps there are other non-rational sources of cognitive guidance that trump the method of reason. Or maybe the method of reason is actually a kind of rationalization. Maybe the attempt to believe on the basis of our reasons and evidence is a kind of folly, because in the end, there really is no such thing as evidence. In his new book, Michael Lynch provides a thoroughly sensible and compelling defense of reason against these various kinds of skeptical worries. But the book is not a purely academic exercise in the area of philosophy known as epistemology. Lynch recognizes that questions concerning what we believe and when we believe are often bound up with questions of how we believe. And questions about how we believe are of central importance to the project of sustaining a civil democratic society. That is, in praise of reason, is a work at the intersection of epistemology and political philosophy. It is also a highly engaging read. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Lynch. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Good. Good, Thanks for having me on the program. Well, thank you for uh, for joining us. Um, Today on New Books in Philosophy, I'm talking to Michael Lynch about his new book, In Praise of Reason, which has just come out with the MIT Press. As the title suggests, this book offers a defense of reason and rationality against various kinds of skepticism. Lynch writes in his characteristically engaging style, and the book will be of interest to philosophers and non-philosophers alike. Now, one of the most attractive features of In Praise of Reason, at least to me, is the way in which Lynch brings together considerations from epistemology and political philosophy. 
in a way, it's a an attempt to give a unified uh, uh, account of the cognitive and social value of reason. His central thesis, if I understand uh, him correctly, is something like this. It's that uh, caring about reason and evidence and inquiry and getting things right uh, in the broadest sense is essential to uh, living and having and contributing to a properly democratic civil society. Um, this seems to me to be uh, a novel thesis and I should also say one that strikes me as uh, um, uh, manifestly correct. Um, but before we dive into the details of Lynch's view, um, Michael, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this project? Well, I'm, a, as you indicated, I'm a, naturally a professor uh, of philosophy. I work at the University of Connecticut. Um, I got into this project in a way through the back door. I've been working for a number of years on the nature of truth and uh, sometimes from a very technical standpoint, uh, trying to say what I thought truth was. But when I was thinking about truth, I started thinking about why we should care about truth. I mean, why was it important to be doing this work on what truth was? I mean, who really gives her, right? Uh, what matters about truth? And that led me to write a book on that topic. Um, and I, became, I came to think that if you wanted to know what truth was, uh, it was a good strategy to figure out uh, what truth, um, uh, why we should care about truth. Uh, and I think in general, that's a good strategy. If you want to know what something is, you should also ask the normative question, why does it matter to us? Because the answer mm -hmm. to the question of why it matters to us can actually reveal something about what, at least what we think its nature consists in. So that's what I started to think about truth. And subsequent to that, I began to realize that a lot of what I had said about uh, why truth matters to us uh, was uh, incomplete because I had not sufficiently addressed uh, the various, why we should care about favoring certain methods for getting at the truth over other methods. I mean, it could come all, you know, we could all grant that I suppose in a society that at one level at least, most people just, you know, they do care about truth. Uh, the really hard questions I began to realize really come up when we start asking, but who has the best method for getting at the truth? Um, and it was that conflict over methodology that got me interested in reason because uh, in one way of understanding that conflict, there are people that think that certain methods associated with science, call those the methods of reason, can access, uh, get us to the truth. And those methods in some sense trump other methods. And then there are other people in our society who might grant that science is all well and good, but that the methods of science are themselves trumped, at least with regard to certain areas of, of truth, uh, by other sorts of methods, perhaps religious methods, perhaps more psychological methods. So that's how I got interested in this project that I'm involved in now. Well, excellent. Um, so just picking up on that on that last uh, uh, thought, let me read um, uh, a sentence or two uh, that appears um, on uh, page three of the book, where you you talk about the 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 aim of the book, and um, I want to because you, you, in this uh, this this little passage, um, you mention two things that really are themes that run throughout the book, and I want to 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 put on the sure. on on the agenda both of those things. So here's here's what you say. 
Um, I will try to convince you, you're talking to the reader, that while skeptical worries are serious and in many ways understandable, they can be answered. Then you go on. Reason matters and appeals to reasons matter, and not just for the noble ideals of the academy, but for the down-to-brass-tacks, mud-on-your-boots world in which we all live. Um, now, I, I want to ask you about skepticism uh, in a moment, but, but before turning to that, um, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the mud-on-your-boots stuff. Um, so could you, the, the book begins, in fact, with, um, and, and the book also sort of carries through uh, in other parts, sort of these um, sociological data about crazy things that people believe or sure. crazy ways in which people go about uh, either forming their beliefs or maintaining them or sus sustaining them in light of recalcitrant uh, evidence or consideration. So I take it that um, you think that um, the knockabout world uh, of people and politics and belief um, that these are the, the real motivations in a way, uh, for the book and that you, you're, you're worried about, uh, uh, the ways in which, uh, our fellow citizens might be going about managing their cognitive lives. Does that seem right? Yeah, that is right. Uh, um, I'm worried not just about, uh, but one qualification, it's not just that I am of course worried, I think as we all are about the fact that People might be, uh, including ourselves perhaps, <laughs> uh, right. are not managing our cognitive lives as well as we should be. I mean, I'd certainly own up to that. Um, so I am, you know, of course that's worrying, but I, I'm worried about the particular sources of this mismanagement. Uh, I'm worried about the fact that in certain respects, uh, the mismanagement, as we call it, of our cognitive selves, our fact that we seem to be not uh, paying, us, paying attention to the appeals of reason or the uses of reason as much as we should, really have uh, at this moment in our, our cultural development certain sources that, while lying right beneath the surface of the cultural debate um, and therefore sometimes overlooked, are nonetheless extremely important, are somehow forming are, are, are the source of, of certain kinds of special um, mismanagement that are occurring now. So it's not just the fact that people, you know, believe crazy stuff. People believe crazy stuff for as long as there's been human beings. But the ways in which people are arriving at these crazy views and the uh, their, their reactions to others who they believe have different views than their own. So let me give you some examples sure. about that. Um, so, I mean, you notice that the book begin. Yeah, the book begins with some data. So, what's some of the data that you're talking about? I mean, I mean, take the case of evolution, right? So, according to a 2007 Gallup poll that I cite in the book, something like 14% of those who don't say who say that they don't believe in evolution, which, by the way, is actually, uh, you know, so I'm talking about 14% of the people who don't say that they, who say they don't believe in evolution in the United States, which is most of the people. <laughs> right. Right. But only 14% of those folks actually cited lack of evidence as the main reason for holding their views about it. Right. Evolution. Um, other polls indicate that, in fact, most people uh, are aware that there's overwhelming scientific agreement on the truth of evolutionary theory. So it's not, what's interesting about that is that it's, you know, most people, they acknowledge that there is scientific evidence for evolutionary theory. It's just that this sort of evidence doesn't seem very persuasive to them when it comes to certain issues that they really care about. 
Now, there's a lot of different explanations you might give for that. One is the fact that science, we need more, better science education, uh, maybe a sociological evidence uh, that, that people aren't just in some sense vested in the community of science. Maybe there's psychological evidence that might might appeal to. Certain ideas just are difficult for people to understand, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those are very helpful remarks. But I think data like this also shows to another another possibility that many people are in a certain sense uh, implicitly skeptical about reason, whereby reason I mean in this in this particular context, the methods and practices that we often associate uh, with scientific inquiry. People are skeptical about that, about them. They're, they're skeptical about whether they should trust them, those methods, when it comes to certain things that really matter to them. And so it's not that they don't see that there isn't evidence of this sort, scientific evidence. They're just wondering whether that sort of evidence is the sort of evidence that really has any persuasive or, or power for them. And they're a bit skeptical that it does. And in fact, in fact, it seems that they don't don't think that it is. Go ahead. Right. So um, and I, I also take it that um, uh, one of the concerns uh, driving uh, the book is not simply, you know, that in our sort of individual cognitive lives, we, um, you know, recognize what the evidence suggests and then have some way of either dismissing the idea of evidence as such or thinking that the kind of evidence that uh, scientists gather and deal with is not the relevant kind of uh, evidence or not the right kind of consideration. But I guess that also... Um, uh, the book also talks about uh, climate change and other kinds of cases in which it looks as if there's a lot more at stake uh, uh, in um, what we believe uh, uh, in that uh, if we if, if we deny certain kinds of things or don't you know right. reject the idea of uh, evidence or scientific evidence when it comes to figuring out what to believe about certain kinds of issues, the impact extends far beyond our own sort of uh, interior uh, epistemic or doxastic lives and actually affects, um, you know, affects other people or future generations or the planet. A a absolutely. I mean, uh, and, you know, this sort of, so a lot hangs, it, it seems to me, on practical things, Matt practical things hang on, obviously, on what methods of uh, uh, belief we employ. Uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, from the questions that you just raised to, you know, in some sense, more banal cases. So, you know, cases about trying to decide, for example, what's going to go in our textbooks. Um, everybody at the table, let's say, in the Texas uh school system might say that, look, we're interested in putting the facts in our textbooks. And uh, we're, that's important to us. It's a matter of policy. We want our children to be educated. We want them to learn the truth. The question, uh, the, pretty quickly, though, we start debating over what those facts are. So, for example, is evolution uh, to be understood as factual, as something that can be put into a science textbook? But the interesting thing about debates like this, debates over global warming, debates over uh, evolution, debates over, let's say, the MMR uh, vaccine, these debates quickly ratchet up, it seems to me. Uh, they move up what I call the epistemic ladder to debates over whose evidence, who has the evidence to best support their view of the facts. 
And then, of course, once it reaches that point about questions of evidence, it can ratchet up still further and become a debate over whose methods for generating evidence are the most trustworthy. Is the best way for learning about the past history of the uh, planet, for example, uh, abduction or induction from the fossil and historical record? Or is it rather uh, consulting a particular book, a sacred text? Um, there's actual real disagreement about which of these methods is the right one. And I think uh, those of us, um, particularly, uh, you know, in, those of us who are sort of see ourselves as part of the broad scientific community, and those of us who also see ourselves as part of the left, have a tendency, I think, to dismiss this sort of debate. We tend to say, I, I tend to find that a lot of people will say, look, people have crazy methods. What are you going to do? You know, I can't deal with people like that. That's a real mistake. It's a mistake epistemically and it's a mistake politically. Because if you just dig in and refuse to take seriously the challenge to your methods and the reliability that is being made in certain parts of our cultural discourse right now, you open yourself up to being held up as a example of, of the dogmatic, of the dogmatist. Right. Uh, so Santorum on the co uh, campaign trail back when he was uh, campaigning for president, he one day remarked, you know, so, uh, he said, um, uh, uh, the conservative, the GOP, we're not the we're not enemies of science. We're not the anti-science party. We're the pro-truth party. He says it's our duty to make sure that the claims that scientists make are, are making are verified as true. Now that's a really interesting claim. I'm paraphrasing the last bit, but right. it's a fairly quick paraphrase. Very interesting claim. The thought that that they're not anti-science. It's just that. So what is he saying? What's the thought there? The thought is, well, these methods that the scientists are appealing to, well we're not going to be persuaded that those are necessarily always the best methods. Right. We have other methods for getting at the truth. Right. Very interesting. And it shows how this abstract debate over that is, that does quickly get very abstract over, uh, over epistemology and who has the best methods for getting at, at the truth over reason that really does have a cultural impact right here and now. Right. Right. And just picking up on this. So um, uh, in the um, in what you were just saying, I think that you 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 showed uh, very nicely the ways in which um, sort of what we might think of as sort of two, maybe they're not two distinct kinds, but sort of two uh, um, uh, types of skepticism are connected. There's the sort of more sociological kind of skepticism, uh, like the the man on the street sort of, you know, I'm not going to let scientists tell me what's what, um, you know, they're just, you know, geeky guys in lab coats, you know, I've got other methods right. or other sources. So there's a kind of sociological sort of skepticism that manifests itself as a kind of non-deferentialism right. to science and reason and, and evidence and the rest. And that is, you know, not, you know, it's continuous with, the more standard skeptical views that we as philosophers, you know, deal with the, the sextus, you know, Puranic uh, 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 worries about justifying methods. Um, and so uh, in the book, I think you make uh, a nice transition back and forth between the more 
philosophically nuanced, skeptical views um, uh, about methods and dogmatism and digging your heels in and right. arguing in a circle. Those are uh, Agrippa trilemma types of, of concerns right. and the more sociological stuff. And I take it that you think um, that uh, the philosophical, the nuanced kind of skepticism um, admits of uh, a kind of powerful response on behalf of reason. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Because, sure. you know, that's a, that's part of the book that, uh, although still being accessible to, uh, non-philosophers who might read the book, uh, I thought was philosophically, uh, uh, kind of exciting. Thank you. Yeah. So let me, let me first frame what the problem is that I, you, you mentioned it, uh, and let me just expound on that a little bit and then start talking about what I think we can and can't say in response to this sort of skepticism. Great. So, uh, I think that the subtler source of skepticism that you're talking about is is this. I agree the sociological and, and the one I'm about to describe are connected. But the subtler one is basically this, that we can't seem to give reasons for our trust in certain methods of reason <laughs> without right. running in circles. Right. Right. Um, and the, the way that manifests itself in a cult in a culture is how do we, you know, we the 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 Somebody like Santorum says, well, how do you defend your trust in science on some particular matter? Are you going to just, how are you going to answer that? Are you just going to show do more science? Right. Uh, that seems to be a problem. The way this 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 arises in more traditional context could be understood as, as, as just a sort of a problem about first principles and how we justify first principles to each other. Um, if we think of uh, a basic belief-forming method as a method which is basic precisely because we cannot give any argument to show that it's reliable that doesn't employ that method. Then we can say that certain what we might call epistemic principles, first principles, first epistemic principles or fundamental epistemic principles are principles that amounts uh, that announce that such methods are reliable. And the problem is how do we defend such first principles? Principles like in an obvious sense uh valid uh, inference from uh, deductively valid inference from true premises uh, is a reliable way of <laughs> expanding your knowledge. How, how do we defend that that is logic, logic is reliable without using logic? That's the point that the skeptics always raised. It seems that we have a finite amount of methods, uh, finite amount of principles, and once uh, the skeptic challenges us to defend one of the principles, it seems we have to appeal to another principle. And eventually we get down to some principles which we can't seem to defend except in terms of themselves. And that, uh, it seems to me, is at heart uh, a very, A, philosophically important and historically important problem, and B, really what's uh, at root uh, behind a lot of the skepticism that's pervasive in our culture. So how do we answer that problem? Right. Well, um, my own sort of thought is that we can't, we have to admit there's some truth to the skeptic. We have to admit uh, that I am not going to be able to give you, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, give you a reason, an epistemic reason for accepting my fundamental epistemic principles. Uh, unless you've already accepted that reason in those principles. So if you challenge some fundamental epistemic principle of mine openly and demand me to give an epistemic reason for its uh, 
truth, and a, a reason for its truth, uh, I will not be able to do that if it's a fundamental epistemic principle. Uh, and the skeptic I argument, I think, shows that that's the case. But what that, that, however, does not mean that we have to conclude that there are no reasons for such fundamental epistemic principles, because there are different kinds of reasons. There are epistemic reasons, reasons for believing that a principle is true. There's also practical reasons, reasons for committing to certain principles, that is, taking them on as premises in our uh, future reasoning, future arguments, uh, trusting those principles. There's practical reasons I can give for committing to a principle. Um, and what I do in the book is to try to show that we can give, moreover, objective practical reasons for committing to certain epistemic principles over others. The big picture way of thinking about this is as follows. What I argue is that scientific principles of reason, epistemic, scientific first principles, are uh, rational, rational to trust over an, over other sorts of principles because they have certain democratic virtues that other sorts of epistemic principles that we might entertain don't have, or they have more of those virtues. And so uh, while I think, you know, we've traditionally wanted to sort of defend the rationality of our epistemic methods, our basic methods, by appeal to something, you know, to to something epistemic, uh, I think we need to give up on that project and recognize that what we have to do is show that our epistemic principles are reinforced by our moral and practical principles. That doesn't mean that they're not rational. Indeed, it means that they're just it just means they're rational in a different way than we might have initially expected. Okay, so good. Um, so let me just ask. Uh, sort of a, a press a philosophical concern with uh, with this line sure um, uh, what do you say to people who say they're not practically interested in um, having a democratic civil society with you <laughs> maybe they're interested in having a democratic civil society with their fellow religionists for example um, uh, so does does the the idea that um, uh, we justify our fundamental epistemic commitments by appeal to practical considerations about the kind of social um, order we we most would hope for um, uh, does that generate some 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 difficulty uh, in dealing with people who either want a different kind of social order or might want the same kind of social order you're interested in, but just not with any old person, but with only uh, a particular kind of person. I think, right, there's two questions there. There are two different types of people there. The one who might want a slightly different social order than myself. Right. One who just says, screw social order with you in general, you know. I mean, you know, I just can't deal with... Uh, with you philosophers you or you academics. You know, or, just can't deal with you, you know. You're just too weird. And just leave us alone and we'll form our own society. Um, now, to this second sort of person, you're right that the sort of strategy that I'm using to try to show that a certain sort of epistemic principles are more rational will, will have some of its force blunted uh, if that person is willing to insist that they have no interest at all in, in what I would call certain dem democratic uh, virtues of tolerance, open openness, and uh, the 
an interest in treating uh, other people with a certain amount of respect because they are persons. If they have no, if they're not already committed to those sorts of values, you're right. It's going to be difficult for me to bootstrap uh, some uh, epistemic principles uh, in the way that I'm talking about. So what that shows, though, I think is, and in a way, what I want to say is, well, that's right. I mean, this book is an attempt to show why, given certain, you know, uh, certain uh, assumptions that I'm taking for granted, we can still nonetheless argue that our epistemic principles are rational. I think, I mean, given the sort of question that I'm talking about, I think it would be very difficult in a sense I've already conceded that, it, you know, if we assume nothing, if I assume nothing, then it's going to be very difficult for us to continue to have any sort of conversation. Uh, either with ourselves <laughs> or, right. or or with anybody else. So right. to some extent, of course, I want to acknowledge that, sure, we've got to take certain things for granted. When I say that we need, when I celebrate in the book the importance of giving and exchanging reasons for our positions, um, uh, I'm not saying that, uh, it, far from it, that uh, at some point in, in certain parts of the conversation, we, do, we have to assume and take something for granted and move on from there. But I am uh, saying that what we got to be open to, what the, the right attitude, the right epistemic attitude that we have to have is one according to which we take questions like the ones that you just raised seriously. So when, you know, that is, we got to be willing to take certain things for granted, like I did in this book, take certain premises for granted. What am I taking for granted? That we're working toward, that the, the reader of the book is somebody who's interested in, like, in, in working towards a civil democratic society. If they're not, then, okay, now we need to s switch to a different sort of strategy. That's right. right. But the, the differences between myself and that person aren't going to be limited to the epistemic, as they say in the book. I mean, right. you're not interested in democracy. And my differences with you aren't really epistemic issues, uh, first and foremost. They're political and moral issues. And it's there that I think we're going to need to start our discussion. Right. Um well, excellent. Um, so I want I'm, I'm, I want to get back to uh, uh, this epistemic uh, issue about um, uh, first principles uh, in a minute, but let's take a slight detour because um, one of the other uh, really nice parts of the book, I thought, was um, the discussion of um, the relation between reason or our faculty of reason or the the practices involved in reason giving, um, uh, the relation of those things to uh, other what we might think of or traditionally might think of as, as sort of non-rational or para-rational uh, uh, capacities that we have. So as you know and as you describe in the book and explain in the book, the long tradition in philosophy of thinking that reason has um, uh, an opponent actually uh, within the human psyche uh, in, in emotion, that somehow reason and emotion are these two distinct kinds of capacities or distinct kinds of forces yep. uh, within our lives uh, as Plato uh, portrayed them as sort of two uh, um, uh, horses sort of vying for control over the the chariot, which is the, the human soul or the human psyche. Um, and um, a long tradition of philosophy has it that these two things are distinct. They are opposed and something like the good life consists in giving control or ensuring that control is in the hands of reason and not emotion. 
Um, there are, of course, counter traditions, which mm -hmm. reverse that picture. And then there are uh, other kinds of positions which try to uh, strike a balance between them. But um, uh, I would say that the majority of uh, the philosophical tradition, at least uh, in, the, in the canon in the West, has it that these are two opposed things. Uh, and the, the trick is to somehow you know, negotiate their relation. Um, but you've got a slightly a, a different picture in that um, it seems to me that you're not sure that they're opposed, even if they may be distinct. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your views about the connection between reason and emotion, for example? Sure. I think you exactly summed up my basic position uh, by uh, when, when you said that I, I think that even if these are in some sense, of course, there's a difference between reason and emotion, that they're not as opposed as our traditional pictures would have us believe. Uh, let me say a little bit about why I think in the present context, too, that we've been talking about, uh, including the political context, this question really matters. Uh, I mean, it matters independently as a matter of philosophical psychology. It's of intrinsic interest. But it also matters because what we were talking about a moment ago is this sort of general skepticism that's a pervasive in our culture about the thought, and, and which could be summed up this way, that reason always give way, gives way to something arbitrary. At the end of the day, reasons give out. We have to take something for granted, as I myself was acknowledging before. And that just shows that at some point, reason really isn't the master. It always gives way to something else. And one of those things that I think a lot of people would, would say uh, is very plausible that it gives way to, uh, that is ultimately founded on, in a way, is emotion. Uh, and uh, linked to emotion, the notion of intuition, or going by the gut. Uh, on top of this, uh, of course, this is a view that um, um, that in some form or other, uh, I think it's delicate matter of interpretation, how exactly he thought of it, but that Hume, of course, is often associated with uh, reason is the slave of the passions, as the famous quote goes. But uh, it, it's also something that's extremely um, uh, hot right now in in psychology, at least among certain sorts of psychologists. And I'm thinking about uh, Drew Weston and Jonathan Haidt in particular. Of course, there's many, many more researchers working on this. Um, according to a lot of these researchers, uh, particularly the the gentleman I just mentioned, uh, Hume is at, was is definitely right. Uh, according to them, um, we it's not only just the case that we often go with our emotional gut over the evidence, which we don't need psychologists to tell us. Of course, we generally do. Often we go with our what we feel rather than what our reason tells us. Uh, but that, in some sense, this is hardwired into us. And in a sense, we can't even help it. And if that's the case, then the idea of praising reason, of you know, the idea that we should try to set up our culture in a way to, to um to allow for the flourishing of the exchange and, and discussion of reasons is sort of a fantasy, an illusion. In fact, Jonathan Haidt calls it in his recent book, the rationalist delusion. It's an right. illusion to think that we should, uh, we should uh, try to appeal more to reason in our political debates because, in fact, we can't. Uh, and there's a lot of data, of course, that people try to suggest uh, that uh, – is supposed to show this. Um, uh, there's data that, that for example, Weston uh, shows that that it, it goes into where he well he, he says he shows. I mean, what the data actually shows is an interesting question, but the studies are very interesting. For example, he he uh, 
did a particular test where he told the participants in the test some information about uh, a, a fictional case that uh, about a military uh, uh, member of the U.S. military uh, torturing some prisoners. The military guy, when questioned in the story, says that he had thought that the uh, the rules had changed, that the higher-ups had told him it was okay to torture, and so he went ahead and tortured. And what they asked, they asked various questions about to what extent would you hold this guy responsible or who would you hold responsible. And uh, this data, consistent with lots of other studies, indicates that they they could predict how people would respond to these questions about responsibility um, based uh, and predict it with a very high degree of accuracy based on how people would react to certain other questions uh, given to them uh, ahead of time in a pretest. Questions about, let's say, their relationship to the military. People who had a, a, a strong emotional attachments to the military tended to hold the person less responsible. And uh, these data, this predictive powers maintained across um, various versions of the test. So no matter how much further data uh, you might give data in quotes to people in order to, that, uh, to allow them to assess the fictional story in a more rational way, that is more data about the, whether the guy is telling the truth and about the, what, what his higher ups told him and so forth and so on. Um, uh, it doesn't really matter as if they were emotionally committed to, uh, said, says the scientist, says Drew Weston, they're emotionally committed to uh, trusting the military, then they were going to answer these questions about responsibility in one way and not in another way. And so this and lots of other data seems to suggest that, you know, uh, people's emotional reactions uh, uh, trump their rational reactions. Another quick example, IQ tests. Uh, if you're given an IQ test and then uh, uh, you'll let and do and you're told you do well on it, whether you do or not, you're told you do well on it, then it seems apparently that you'll be more likely to want to read articles that that reaffirm the efficacy of IQ tests. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do poorly on that, or you're told you do poorly, you'll be more interested in reading articles that show that IQ tests uh, are not reliable. So there's all sorts of interesting data out there. And what does this show us? Well, according to people like Weston and Height, what it shows us is that um, uh, we're really emotional beings and uh, appeals to reason just aren't causally efficacious. Reasoning, that what we call reasoning is actually generally post hoc rationalization. Uh, we come up with reasons for our emotional responses after the fact. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of common sense here, of course. I mean, in a sense, as I said before, we don't really need fancy-smancy psychologists to tell us that, yep, we make up a lot of reasons post hoc. That's part of the human condition. And it's, we don't also need to be told that a lot of our primary initial commitments are often made because of emotional attachments. And moreover, we don't think have to think that's bad. What I think is suspicious about some of this data is the more global considerations that people draw from this. One thing that people tend to draw is that, well, these initial emotional attachments we make are, are themselves purely emotional. They are not infected by any sort of rational or cognitive thinking. And that's not really, it's not clear that that actually makes sense because we can certainly, at, le at the very least, we can say that our emotional attachments or emotional reactions 
are at least subject to reason. We can evaluate them. We do hold people responsible sometimes, not just for what they do, but whether what they're feeling is apt or appropriate given the situation. Um, in the book, I give an example of if if um, you spill a little wine on the sleeve of your dinner partner and the dinner partner gets up and screams at you for that, um, you might think that that's a little bit overreaction. You would hold them responsible not just for yelling at you, but in fact, you would even if they didn't yell at you, but they felt that way, that would be right. more creepy, right? <laughs> right. That's right. Right. It'd be creepy. To, to, uh, it'd be almost better if they yelled at you. So right. you do hold people responsible. And I think that shows that the, the truth of the matter is actually a little bit more complex. Another thing I would add here is that I think, you know, go back to the example of the torture case. I mean, you know, in a sense, um, I mean, this too, as I said, it, it's not surprising that we can predict how people are going to respond to certain new pieces of information based on their core commitments. Um, I mean, the Quine-Duheim hypothesis a long time ago got us to see that in reasoning or thinking in general, human beings uh, are conservative in a certain sense. We resist uh, revising our views in light of the evidence. And um, I mean, uh, the fact that, for example, um, think, think about another case that Weston talks about. He points out that you know, partisans, uh, political partisans on either side of the political spectrum are much easier to you know, sort of when presented with contradictions in their, you know, let's say their favorite politicians uh, announcements when you know, shown that their, poli their favorite politician says P and then not P later on. That at first initially provides some cognitive dissonance, but they quickly sort of come up with explanations for why this what seems to be a contradiction isn't a contradiction. Well, you know, again, not a surprise. Does this show that we're incapable of changing our views in light of, of uh, evidence to the contrary? No. What it does show is that reason works slowly. Um, we are we often start out with some core commitments. And our first reaction, as Quine and Duheim noted a long time ago, is in the face of contrary evidence to sort of try to incorporate that evidence, revise as little as possible so that we can incorporate those evidence. We try to keep hold on to our core commitments. That's what makes our core commitments core. But our core commitments can change. It just can take a very long time. Look about look at how people's attitudes towards race and gender have changed in you know, our lifetime, for example, Bob, uh, in certain, certain parts of the, of the country. Um, these things can change. And, that, and I think it's too quick to just say that what's happening here is just a sort of switch in the brain from one sort of emotional reaction to the other. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a complicated story about how reason relates to emotion. But I think that the present, a lot of the present data that's being bandied about, uh, while interesting and important and, uh, uh, you know, something we should pay attention to, doesn't seem to me to warrant the um, strong conclusions that are being drawn for it, from it. Right. And I suppose that it's open uh, uh, to, for one to argue um, and I'm not, I'm not remembering if you make this particular move in the book, but I, I take it that, that you would welcome it, that um, given the, the Quine and Duham stuff, that, um, you know, how we react to unsettling or disconcerting data 
um, and how we reconstruct and how we even rationalize uh, or deceive ourselves, these, uh, these various kinds of activities, even if they are ultimately self-deceptive, are not uh, non-rational, right? They're, they have a kind of instrumental rationality to them um, in that uh, in these cases, um, you know, people don't just stand up and start doing jumping jacks in response to disconcerting evidence. They um, f- try to figure out ways to minimize the damage done by right. new data. Right. Um, and I suppose it could also be said that there's a kind of rationality to epistemic conservatism, um, there's something, um, uh, you know, th- there are cognitive benefits to, um, uh, having certain sort of central kinds of beliefs be kind of steady. Um, and so you don't want to, you know, this is again, a good quine doom kind of point. You don't want to just give up, you know, things at the periphery of your belief system. They can change and come and go, uh, uh, you know, moment to moment, but the sort of central commitments is a kind of. You know, it might even be constitutive of being a, a rational creature that those don't change from moment to moment, right? You don't want to rock your epistemic boat too much because it'll tip over and you won't know what to believe. And uh, I think exactly right. I, I, I think that uh, in a way, the, 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 the lesson here is simple. Um, we can all agree on that sort of point that it makes, you know, this is a, this sort of hypothesis, Quanduheim hypothesis about how reasoning function is, is, is a reasonable <laughs> explanation of, of this sort of data. And it's an explanation that doesn't necessarily show that our commitments, uh, and our re- reluctance to, uh, uh, to uh, revise some of those core commitments is an inherently an emotional commitment only. It's, right. um, so, and, that, and that's really the, the simple point here. One further point on this. I mean, Hyde in particular, I think, has been on my mind recently. Here's a quote from his, uh, or a paraphrase from his recent book. He said something like, um, look, anyone who values reason, he says, this is really what he says. He said, I mean, excuse me, anyone who values truth should stop worshiping reason. This is what he's talking about, the delusion, the reason delusion. Uh, he says, we need to look at the cold, hard look. We take a, need to take a cold, hard look at the evidence, uh, uh, the scientific evidence, and see reasoning for what it is. Uh, that's just a bizarre statement on a lot of levels, right? It sounds crazy to me. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it really brings out, I think, a problem that uh, some of the more... Um, um, some 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 of the the the, the more bolder uh, uh, positions really have here. If you're going to claim that reason uh, is uh, never gets you uh, to the truth, or that it's always distorted, or it's always really just a, a guise for uh, emotional um, uh, attachment or manipulation then that position is going to have to apply to the very point that you're making yourself. Exactly. And it seems self-undermining. Yeah, that was my initial reaction. Um, I mean, it looked as if um, what was being offered was an argument for taking this um, this different kind of view about reason based on some psychological evidence. Oh, yes, but... exactly. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, I think this is a problem. Yeah. Um, well, excellent. Um, let's move on. I, wa- I wanted to um, uh, to get back um, to the uh, to the question about um, uh, 
what we do when we're trying to uh, justify or reconcile ourselves to or maybe even choose to adopt some fundamental epistemic principles or commitments. And um, one of the really uh, novel things um, uh, that you propose in the book um, is a kind of uh, thought experiment uh, for thinking our way through this issue about um, uh, our basic commitments and you know part of what makes them basic is that you you can't just exercise those very commitments uh, 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 in their own support so you can't bootstrap um, so um, uh, the, the move here is to appropriate um, in an interesting way um, uh, a mode of argument that uh, political philosophers such as myself are, are highly influenced by introduced by John Rawls uh, in his um, uh, highly you know influential uh, book, A Theory of Justice. Yes. Um, Rawls famously uh, sought to um, support or maybe stronger justify uh, his favored conception of justice, what he called justice's fairness, which is composed of, of two principles of justice, um, by arguing that this conception or these two principles would be chosen by rational uh, uh, self-interested mainly persons um, who had to think about the question of justice from a very special kind of artificial uh, condition. Um, uh, he called the original position, uh, and he said that in the original position, deliberators uh, find themselves under a veil of ignorance. They don't know what their role is going to be in, in the society for which they're yes. choosing principles of justice. Um, now, we don't have to go into the details. Lots of people who would be listening to this know uh, uh, enough about Rawls that we, we don't have to go further. Um, but uh, you propose a kind of uh, uh, twist uh, on this Rawlsian uh, strategy um, uh, for addressing this problem of how we justify our basic epistemic principles to ourselves and you conceive of something like an epistemological version of uh, the original yeah. position argument. Uh, can you run us through that and tell sure. us how that works? Exactly. So the basic uh, thrust, uh, the conclusion of the, of the argument uh, that I give is that our, the fundamental, fundamental epistemic principles uh, that were most, that are most rational to commit to are those that would be accepted in an idealized state of uh, social and epistemic equality. So the rational epistemic principles to commit to, the ones that we can give reasons for, are ones that meet that condition. So here's the sort of thought. I think of it as sort of like, a, I call it the method game, and it's explicitly Rawlsian in its character, and you'll see this as I go on. So the thought is this, we're trying to figure out which of these basic epistemic principles, which are about basic epistemic methods, uh, are rational to commit to. So suppose we, we have a little game called the method game, where we sit around a table and we have to make a decision about which principles we're going to privilege in some other world, W, that we're all going to uh, later be a member of. And there's lots of things we don't know about W. We don't know uh, what our social position is going to be in W. We don't know all the same things that we didn't know in the Rawlsian original position. We don't know our religious commitments and so forth, our education level. We don't, are not going to know about that. We're going to join W, but we don't know any of those facts. But we also, interestingly enough, uh, are epistemically ignorant about the W. We have no knowledge of which of these principles, epistemic principles, are going to be 
true in W. For all we know, W could turn out to be a, a Cartesian demon world, and none of our ordinary or very few of our uh, epistemic uh, methods and principles are going to be uh, reliable or true. Um, so uh, we're in this position of massive ignorance about W. But nonetheless, we're charged in the game. The point of the game is to actually settle on which of the principles we'll privilege. By privilege, I just simply mean which are the ones we're going to commit to in W. And, 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 and privilege is a practical matter. It's a matter of which of these principles are going to be taught in the schools, which are going to be used to adjudicate uh, differences uh, and uh, appeals for research money and the like. So we've got to make this decision about W. Now, uh, when we come to play the game, those sitting around the table, now we're not in W, we're in alpha. So in alpha, in the, in the actual world, uh, we, can, we, can, uh, we can appeal to whatever epistemic principles and methods we'd like, uh, but we have to abide by certain rules of the game. Uh, and those rules are these. When, when arguing in alpha for which principles to privilege in W, we can't, because of the, the, the levels of ignorance that I talked about before, it's against the rules of the game to present epistemic reasons, direct or indirect epistemic reasons, for favoring the principle. So I can't say to you, for example, look, we've got to trust um, such and such a method because uh, um, uh, I know this method's reliable here, and so it's probably going to be reliable there. I also can't say things like, well, um, you know, God has told me that this consulting the book is reliable here. Uh, and I can't say that, well, therefore, it's going to be reliable in W either. I might think that right. but those aren't the sorts of reasons that we're allowed to give each other in the, in the, in the game to persuade each other uh, to uh, adopt one principle or another. So once you can put these constraints in question, it's an interesting uh, sort of exercise to think about what sorts of reasons we could appeal to to try to persuade each other. And what I find that we're going to do is we're going to start appealing to uh, reasons for favoring uh, principles that are uh, obviously not epistemic, but are tracking the sorts of things that we do know and we do think are important for anyone, any self-interested person who's going to join W. Here's an example of what I mean. I think it's going to be, uh, when considering you know, competing principles in alpha, when sitting around the table of the method game, it's going to be, I think, natural for people to first say, well, look, uh, we do know, I didn't add this earlier, but we do know that the inhabitants of W are going to be human beings. That you do know. So we might, we can at least say that they are going to employ things like um, sense perception. Now, we don't know whether sense perception is going to be reliable. It could be a Cartesian demon world, but we do know that they're going to use it. So we might as well privilege these, these methods that they're going to use just because of their hard wiring, so to speak. We might as well privilege those off of the bat because we're not going to be able to really help but use those. Then the real questions are going to be about which whether we should use those as trumping principles or not. Should we, in a sense, favor the ones that we all have to use because we're human beings? And I think the answer is quickly going to suggest that we probably will. One of the things that we're going to, the reason for that is because if we all, in virtue of being human beings, have certain abilities and meth and uh, and and therefore are going to use, be able to use certain methods, then because I'm not going to know who I'm going to turn out to be uh, in W, it's going to be attractive to me to privilege the methods that I know that I am going to be able to appeal to. 
I'm going to be less attracted to privileging methods if I'm self-interested that, let's say, only allow the access to the truth or what we think is the truth uh, by a privileged view, because I don't know whether I'm going to be in that privileged view. So I think we're going to favor methods that are transparent, widely accessible, public in a certain way, and have various other virtues of that sort. Excellent. Um, and so um, what uh, – I guess I'm just thinking uh, sort of off the cuff at this point about whether um, uh, your um, appeal to this – again, modified, but very roughly, uh, Rawlsian framework doesn't, uh, inherit some of the, 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 the standard and by now textbook kinds of objections that, uh, political philosophers have brought against Rawls. And one of the things that you do in the book, I think very effectively is, uh, after you introduce this method game set of considerations, you do run through, um, right. some of the questions that people who, uh, might be, uh, either critics or, uh, at least uh, willing to think about uh, uh, criticizing the approach, uh, what they might say. Uh, could you walk us through one or two of what you think are um, the more um, uh, either obvious or compelling uh, critical right. moves that someone might make? Right. Well, one thing I think, uh, one thing people will say, I think right off the bat, if, you know, people who've read Michael Sandel and the like, you know, his criticisms of Rawls will say, well, look, you know, one, you seem to be, your method game seems to require us to, to strip our, you know, put aside considerations that are important to our identity as human beings and appeal to these very abstract, minimal considerations. And that's just not very realistic. It's not, among other things, it's not very realistic. People can't put aside such uh, aspects of their identity uh, in order to, you know, engage in this sort of discussion. It's uh, just not, not possible. Uh, that, I think, might be a legitimate criticism of Rawls, although I'm not, you know, I think the matter is jury's still out. It depends on how one under which Rawls we're talking about. Right. But putting aside Rawls, uh, it's it's definitely not an issue for me. And I think it's important to mention this because I think this is crucial to understanding what's going on. I, when I think about, and the difference between what I'm doing and Rawls is doing, when I, when I say, you know, what we're doing when we're doing a, sitting down in the method game is figuring out which methods we're going to privilege in this ideal, in this, in, in this other world. I am definitely allowing, and I have to allow that, people sitting around the table playing the game in the alpha actual world are, of course, going to be using methods uh, in forming their beliefs about which methods to privilege that they uh, think are reliable. So, for example, if you th <laughs> you'll probably, uh, even though you can't appeal to the reliability of deductive inference um, to show that it's a good method to uh, privilege in W, you can't appeal to its reliability for getting at the truth, you probably do think it's reliable and will use it as reliable and you will, will, will therefore use it for that reason when arguing, for example, for or against various principles that are suggested during the method game. But right. that's perfectly fine. There's no problem with that at all. So in my game, it's not that we're, we're minimal cells uh, shrinking to an a vanishing point in terms of our identity behind the veil of ignorance. Rather, we'll, I imagine us as full, the, we're talking about 
the people involved in the game are full-blown individuals with all the various complicated commitments that full-blown individuals actually have. So that's one reason. Another reason, another another uh, one skept, uh, sort of reason to be skeptical about the math, the, math the game. Another reason, another basic uh, argument you might make, which I think is, you know, I, I don't think we'll be able to get into too much, but I think I'll lay it right. on the table, is that, look, um, the, the method game shows us at best practical reasons for favoring certain basic epistemic principles, but gee, didn't really we want uh, skeptic or no skeptic, don't we want some epistemic reasons for favoring uh, our epistemic principles? Isn't that really the, the prize? And what I do show in the book, what I argue in the book, I think that's a legitimate point to think that in a sense what I'm giving people is stone instead of bread. Um, what I argue in the book is that although, as I've already said, Skepticism has to be acknowledged as, as, as really removing the possibility of providing an ultimate epistemic grounding of our epistemic principles, uh, despite Descartes' heroic attempt. Um, there are the, the, the principles and the reasons that I give for, for, for uh, in the course of the method game thought experiment turn out to have um, epistemic relevance, at least, in a very interesting way. And it's a very indirect and roundabout way, but one way of putting it is this. Uh, I think that the met if we privilege the methods that would be accepted in this idealized state of, of epistemic and social equality, we'll find that those methods, which, which turn out to have these democratic virtues, are gonna be methods that, because they have these democratic virtues, not because they have epistemic virtues, but because they have certain democratic virtues, are actually going to be able to, by that, for that very reason, be employed in societies that can be set up to have a, um, uh, a effective, epistemically effective um, uh, system. So in other words, uh, what we want in a society is some sort of epistemic distribution of labor. We can't all be experts on everything. So people have to have the expertise, experts in certain things. And in order to do that, we have to trust each other um, uh, that, you know, we're actually sort of in developing our expertise, we're relying on the right sort of methods. So we need to have some reasons for those that trust. The reasons that we have for the trust, according to my argument, are these practical reasons, but they're reasons all the same. And as a result, they are reasons for um, for setting up a society that has this division of labor. And any society that does have a division of labor in this way is going to be a more effective society for acquiring vis-a-vis -vis acquiring knowledge than one that doesn't. Excellent. Um, so um, we're, 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 we are running out of time, but I do want to, if it's okay with you, just mm -hmm. uh, ask about one other element of sure. the book. If you've got a few extra minutes, it's okay. Okay, good. So... Um, the book ends uh, with um, a, a discussion or a return to uh, an issue which you, you said at the very beginning of our conversation uh, has occupied you uh, since the beginning of your career. You've written extensively and influentially uh, about truth. Um, and um, so in, uh, in the book, In Praise of Reason, um, you, you close um, with uh, a... a uh, uh, a chapter on truth and the pathos of distance. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about that. And then uh, uh, this is asking you to encapsulate a lot. Um, and then to say something about your pluralist conception uh, of truth. Oh, okay, sure. 
the, the problem that I raise at the end of the book is, is uh, uh, an attempt to uh, undermine or be skeptical about reason that is different than the ones we've talked about. I mean, one, re- uh, one reason that people have might be skeptical about reason nowadays is that they see reason, and particularly the way I've been talking about it, is the, the set of practices that are encoded in scientific inquiry as um, based on an illusion of a certain sort, um, namely that it's based on the illusion that there is such a thing as an objective truth that we might be aiming at. And... Uh, this seems particularly, uh, this sort of skepticism seems particularly relevant because the sorts of, re- you know, reasons I've been giving for reasons throughout the book at this point are philosophical reasons. Um, and one might think that uh, if there's any place that we should be suspicious that we're getting at any sort of objective truth, it's in philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at least that's what a lot of people think, maybe not philosophers, but lots of people. Sure. So there's this sort of, you know, this, this worry that in a sense the, that the book, uh, the sort of practical reasons and so forth that I'm giving, moral reasons, these sorts of reasons are, are if any reasons are unobjective, unobjective. And so my defensive reason is itself uh, riddled through with subjectivity. Uh, and that's the sort of defense, worry I have at the end. But it brings up a lot of other issues, issues that you rightly say I've been t- talked about before, uh, and that is just questions of what truth is in general. Uh, I tend to think that um, that people, uh, uh, philosophers who think about truth, um, tend to fall into two camps. There's those who think that truth is, there's one single nature of truth, a real essence of truth, maybe it's correspondence, maybe it's coherence. Um, and then there's those philosophers who think that because attempts to say what the real essence of truth have failed and failed so miserably <laughs> uh, across the uh, uh, history of philosophy, what we really should do is acknowledge that there really is no such thing as the essence of truth and that truth doesn't have a nature. And that thought is a powerful one. And uh, Richard Rorty, I think, among other philosophers, have made it very forcefully, and of course, a whole host of more technically oriented philosophers, such as Hartridge-Field or Paul Horwich. Um, I think both of those views are mistaken. I think it's a sort of uh, example where philosophers sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that while it's true that maybe not every, it's it's right to think that uh, the real essence of truth might not be correspondence, uh, it's wrong to think that truth has no essence. The, the real, the, the better way to think of it is it has more than one. Uh, there's different kinds of truth is the view that I maintain. And uh, the full defense of this is in a different book, in a book called Truth is One of Many. But in Praise of Reason, I try to use this theory. Uh, I marshal it to try to answer this objection that I noted before by essentially saying that, look, the sorts of reasons, practical reasons that we give each other uh, in the method game and in everyday life, these reasons do aim at the truth. They just aim at a different kind of truth than correspondence with the fact. And this kind of truth is fully worthy of the name of truth because truth is itself a functional notion, a notion that can be multiply realized. Uh, this, of course, takes a lot of argument, but it holds out the promise of a very exciting picture of how uh, what Sellers called the manifest image of ourselves 
uh, is related to what he also called the scientific images of ourselves, not as uh, fundamentally incoherent or I mean inconsistent, but rather as images of different kinds of truth. Uh, and I think that's the sort of thing that we need to appreciate if we're going to appreciate that uh, reason, uh, practical reason or theoretical reason, uh, always aims at the truth, even if it's not always aiming at the same kind of truth. Well, excellent. That was a, a very uh, elegant uh, um, summary of uh, uh, some very complicated uh, philosophical thoughts. Uh, and um, uh, I think you did a, a great job. So um, we're um, uh, at the end of our time. Uh, you've been very, very generous. Um, so one last question and uh, uh, then we'll sign off. Um, what are you up to next? I, you know, sometimes I hate asking people who've just published a book what the next thing is. Maybe sure. uh, this doesn't give them a breather. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's what's coming next. Okay, I have a few things that I'm working on. I'm I, I have been, uh, uh, you know, for a while out of the truth game. But you know, every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. <laughs> I, I am busily revamping some of that pluralist theory of truth for some uh, lectures, the brain career lectures that I'm giving in South Korea next oh, week, actually. So I'm writing a new series called the, uh, the, the series of lectures is going to be called the varieties of truth. And this is referencing a quote from sellers. Um, but I, I have longer term projects that are, uh, uh just to briefly describe them. One is an offshoot of the project that, uh, I just in praise of reason project. I'm interested in the fact that, um, uh, we're, you know, the internet, this sort of puzzle that I think a lot of people are interested in now, the internet, Google, for example, seems to have seem, seems to have expanded our knowledge uh, in one sense. But in another sense, it seems to be shrinking it. And, right. and uh, I won't, I, because we were running out of time, I won't expand that too much, but hopefully that'll give you the taste of the puzzle that I'm interested in. And I think what I'm interested in is what that tells us about what knowledge is. Then there's a far a longer term project that I'm interested in. I've been interested in my whole intellectual life, which is the problem, the nature of the imagination. I've just written a book on reason. I'm also interested in imagination, and I think the two aren't. Um, you know, we might think there's a diametrically opposed. I mean, there's the, you know, reason is is what tells us like it is, and imagination is the part of us that makes stuff up. Right. And um, I think that's too simplistic of a uh, way of dividing things. And I want to dive more into the imagination to see if I'm right about that. Well, those both uh, uh, sound like interesting projects. And um, uh, good luck uh, uh, with the trip and with the lectures. Uh, and um, we'll be keeping an eye out for uh, for what what you've been working on uh, or what you what you'll be working on in the future. Um, Thanks so much for your time, uh, and, and thanks for talking to us uh, about uh, In Praise of Reason. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Okay, take care now. Take care. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Michael Lynch of the University of Connecticut. We've been talking about his new book, In Praise of Reason, published by the MIT Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.